Well, good morning, church family. I'm coming to you from uh, from quarantine. Uh, if you were here with, with us a year and a half ago, you might this might look familiar. Um, <laughs> doing all the messages and things from uh, from here in front of the fireplace. Well, uh, I'm back because um, so many of you might have heard this week my. Uh, my, my, our four-year-old daughter Zoe uh, contracted COVID uh, at school, and so um, so so we were we've been home this week, and the the rest of the family we're doing fine. We're we're, we're vaccinated. Just have some kind of mild mild kind of aches and congestion as you know our immune system's kind of fighting off the virus. Um, Zoe, however, had, um, was was seriously ill this week, and so um, Tuesday and Wednesday, especially. So thank you for those of you who knew and were praying uh, for her. I know a lot of people were praying for her Wednesday night and that's, and Wednesday night is actually kind of when she turned a corner and started to improve. Um, so today she's, she's still sick, but she's back to her normal, uh, vivacious and sassy self. Um, so, so we're, we're, we're doing fine here. We're getting through. Um, but, uh, thought it, it, it'd probably be good for, for me to do the sermon this, this way, uh, so as to not ruin anyone else's Thanksgiving plans. Uh, so, so, so here I am coming to you from, from quarantine. Hopefully this is the last time we have to do a message like this. Uh, Lord, please. Um, uh, but so today, this this morning, um, we'd already planned um, to do uh, a, a little bit of a different message today. Um, you know, last week we finished up our our First uh, Corinthians fourteen. So we're almost at the end of the book, but now we're coming into the holiday season. We're going to pause that for a couple weeks, uh, and today wanted to do just a brief. Um, I, I guess you'd call Thanksgiving message because uh, you know this this Thursday uh, everyone's gonna be sitting around for uh, for for turkey uh, for for green bean casserole Keith DeFontes uh, and uh, and celebrating God's God's goodness God's care for us thanking him um, for for all of his provision um, and so so today what I wanted to do is I wanted to to look at um, at two verses, really just two verses in Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. This, this message, I'm, just, I'm calling it a generous God. A generous God. Because what, what I want to do is I want to put some, some foundation underneath our thankfulness this week. Because uh, in verse 31, so you, if you have a Bible, you can open up to, to Romans chapter 8. Because uh, verse verse thirty one sa- says this 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 great sort of triumphant declaration, uh, Paul asks this sort of rhetorical question after after unpacking all of these amazing gospel truths. He he says this in verse thirty one. He says, "If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us." Who can be against us? And obviously, it's a rhetorical question. The, the answer is, well, nobody. But let's think about that for a minute. If God is for me, who can be against me? And I feel like if, if, we're, if we're honest, let's, let's pause here and be honest for a minute. I feel like the... Our answer to that question, a lot of times, could be, who can be against me? Well, lots of things can be against me. 
right? Lots of things can be against us. Uh, COVID can be against us. Circumstances can be against us. There can be people in your life who are against you. There are, there really are a lot of things that are against us, that are opposed to you, circumstances and place and people and, and, and all of that. And, and so, and all of us can, can be in that situation from, from one time to another. Sometimes things are going great. It feels like, oh yeah, yeah, everything's, everything's going my way. And other times it feels like all of life can be arrayed against you. And so, so what does Paul mean when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? When we know that there are lots of things against us. What he means is nothing can be successfully against you if God is for you. Lots of things can oppose you, but none successfully because God in his sovereign care for his people his sovereign care for me, God himself ordains that in the end, when all is said and done and the story is written, nothing works against me and all things work for me. See, we're, we're looking at verse 31, but right before this, Paul, Paul has has elaborated a little bit on this. And the, the famous the famous Romans 8.28 that many of us know and love, he says, verse 28, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things, he says, work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And now, now what does that mean? Because, because again, I want to press press our understanding of this text a little bit because lots of bad things happen and lots of things turn out badly. Lots of things that are opposed to me when the, the, the situation wraps up, I'm like, yeah, that was bad. So what does it mean that all things work together for good? Well, Paul goes on, verse 29, and he, he unpacks this, this chain of sovereign grace of the, the, the almighty grace of God working from eternity past to eternity future to hold all of God's blood-bought children secure. So all things work together for good. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So he, Paul describes this chain of causality, of God sovereignly working all things for my good. It says those 
whom God predestines, that before time began, God looked at me and loved me, not because of anything in me, not because I'm special, not because I was a diamond in the rough, but all because of his heart and his purposes. Ephesians 1 says that he predestined us according to the purpose of his will. And so God looked at me, he looked at you in your sin, in your mess, in your ugliness, from before time began, and God said, I want that one in my family. And those whom he predestined in the fullness of time, he also called. God spoke sovereignly by his spirit to your and my dead hearts. That Ephesians 2 says that, you know, that I, was, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I'm unresponsive to God's grace. But God looked at me in my sin and my death. He said, live he, and he woke me, woke you to the greatness of Jesus, to my need for a Savior. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. That word justify means to declare righteous, that he took my sin, he took your sin. It was nailed to the cross when Jesus died in our place in, in exchange. In exchange, I'm, uh, I get Jesus' perfect obedience, righteousness. I stand before God clothed in, in glory, not my own. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The, the end of the story is glory. And it's, it's amazing. Paul, in describing this chain, Paul puts that in past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified because it's as good as done. It's as, it's as good as done from God's, from God's perspective of eternity. It's done. From predestination to glorification, his children are secure in his hands. And so, all things work together for good. And the good that they're working together for is not always the good as I would see it, but the good of being, verse 29, conformed to the image of of his son to be made more like Jesus. See, everything, everything works for me to make me more like Christ. And everything acts as links in that golden chain drawing me to glory. Which means sickness and suffering work together for my good. Good times and bad work together for my good. COVID works together for my good. Which is easy to say. Right? Easy to say that. Easy to read a Bible verse that says it. And it's easy for me to say with my family on the tail end, end of, of this. Harder to say and harder to believe when the outcome is different though, right? And the outcome has been different for some, for some of you. And, and all of us have or will experience situations where the outcome is not good, in little ways or in big ways. Easy to say, hard to believe 
that those things do in fact work together for my good. Which brings us back to that question in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that, that sinking feeling that I don't, lots of things seem like they can be against me, God. So, so the question is, how, how can I know how can I know that God is good and generous and kind and that God is for me even when circumstances don't go my way? That, 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 that's really the, the question. How can I know that God is good and generous? In a couple days, we'll all be sitting around Thanksgiving tables celebrating God's goodness and we'll, be, and we'll be thinking about and pointing to circumstances in our lives where we're like, yeah, God is good there. But how can I know that he's good and generous when the circumstances don't line up with that? When the, when the outcome does not seem to go my way, when things do seem to, be, to stand against me, how can I know that God is generous? And how can I be thankful then, even when circumstances tell me something else? So how can my thanksgiving be rooted in something deeper than circumstance? And that brings us to verse 32. Verse 32, this is really where we're going to where we're going to sit here in this message. Paul says, "If God is for us, who can be against us?" In verse 32, he puts a foundation under that. And he says, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul says, if, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, how will God not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? If God... So, what Paul is saying is if God loved us with such extravagant, dare I say, reckless generosity as to not withhold his only son, well, everything else is chump change compared to that. And so we can trust him. That's, that's what Paul is saying here in, the, in this verse. And this, this is actually, what Paul is doing in verse 32 here is, is actually a, a logical argument. Uh, this, is, this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If you've studied, if you've studied logic, if you went to classical school, whatever, if you've studied actual classic, classical logic and rhetoric, uh, you might know that, that what this is, this, this is an a fortiori argument. This, this is actually a, a formal classical logical argument that he's making. Um, and the, the a fortiori argument goes like this. It's, if something that is difficult and less likely to be true is in fact true, then the comparatively easier, more likely thing is probably true also. So that, that might be a little hard to follow. But here, here's like a simple, it's a really simple example of the a fortiori greater to the lesser argument. It's if I can bench 350 pounds, <laughs> which I can't, but if I could bench 350 pounds, it means I could probably also pick up my four-year-old daughter when she's sick and cuddle her. You see, that's, 
That's the argument. How, how do I know? Like, how do you know that I can pick up my four-year-old daughter? Well, it's, I, I can bench 350 pounds. Of course I can pick up my 40-pound daughter. That's, and so like, again, that sounds really simple and obvious, but that's the argument from the greater to the lesser of how do I know that this, that this relatively easier thing is true? It's because this much harder thing is also true. So let me let me give you another another example. Let's say let's say that I'm super rich, <laughs> which is also not true. <laughs> let's say I'm super rich, and let's say I come to you one day and I say, "Hey, I want to give you fifty thousand dollars, just cause." Happy birthday, wh whatever. <laughs> which, by the way, if anyone ever wants to do that, you know where to find me. Uh, so I say, "Hey, I want to give fifty thousand dollars," and so now, do you think? If I've just said, I'm, I'm going to give you $50,000, let's go over to the bank and pick it up. Do you think when we drive over to the bank to pick up your money, do you think that I would spot you 50 cents to pay for the parking meter? I mean, yeah, probably. <laughs> That's the greater to the lesser argument. Am I going to, the question is, am I going to spot you 50 cents to pay for the parking meter? Well, yeah, we're on our way to pick up $50,000 for you. Of course I'm going to spot you 50 cents for the meter. That's, that's how the argument goes. And so, and, and so imagine, so the way that, that logic, you know, a lot of times we think of logic and arguments and stuff as just kind of head stuff, but the way that it gets down to our hearts is just imagine in that, in that sort of implausible scenario, that uh, that we're driving to the bank, and you're really worried. Your 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 hands are sweating. I'm really like, oh, oh gosh, what are we gonna do? Because I know that there's a parking meter there, and I don't have fifty cents. Oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? How, how am I gonna park this? There's there's no way this is gonna work because I don't have fifty cents. When the person who's giving you fifty thousand dollars is sitting in the passenger seat next to you. That's a lot of times how our worry functions. This is, this is how, this is what worry looks like for the Christian. What am I going to do about this? When the one who has promised that all things work together for good, who has not spared his own son, is sitting next to us. In fact, this, this is actually, Jesus uses the a fortiori argument in Matthew 6 to address worry. He uses this logical argument as encouragement for worrying anxious people like us. Remember in Matthew 6 when he says, he says, look at the birds of the air, the flowers of the field. He says, look, God, God cares for them. He says, and they're a dime a dozen. They're, they're here today and gone tomorrow. They're so insignificant. And then he says, and so if God's Sovereign care extends to things that are so insignificant. Don't you think his care extends to you who are much more valuable? It's the argument from the greater to the lesser. If his love goes that far all the way to birds and flowers, of course his love goes to you. It's, it's way more surprising that his love goes to birds and flowers. When you, precious and beloved in his sight, of course he's going to care for you. So it's, 
so the a fortiori argument addresses us freaking out about that 50 cents wondering where our daily bread's going to come from tomorrow. How is this all going to work out? There's no way that I can see that this is going to work out. And the argument from the greater to the lesser says, if God will go this far, don't you think he's going to meet you in this need? And so that's exactly what's happening here in Romans 8. What's happening here in Romans 8? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the greater thing. Well, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That, that's the easier thing. If God did the harder thing, the greater thing, giving us his son, you know, saying, I'm going to give you $50,000 just because. Well, of course he's going to do the easier, smaller thing, the, the 50 cents for the parking meter, the graciously giving us everything else. That, that's, that's the argument, and you can see that's how the argument goes from the head to the heart, to, to say, to, to speak to us in confidence and say, look at the hard thing God has done. Don't you think he can handle the easy thing? And so it, here in this verse, there's, there's two things Two things that I, I want us to see here in this argument. Two, two things, if you're, if you're taking notes. The, the first is this. The first thing to see is the spectacular worth of Jesus. And the second thing is the spectacular generosity of God. The, the, those, those are the two things, the foundation I want to put underneath our thankfulness this week. The spectacular worth of Jesus and the spectacular generosity of God. So let, let's look at this first thing, the spectacular worth of Jesus. Because this the argument from the greater to the lesser, the argument in verse 32, what that depends on, again, this might be obvious when you think about it, but it's worth it's spelling out explicitly. The argument depends on the giving up his son for us all to be greater than the giving us all things. That, that's how the argument works. The, the, you know, with my, my bank example, the way that argument works is that $50,000 is more than 50 cents. And the gap between that is what drives my confidence to know that he's going to give me 50 cents. Here, the argument depends on giving his son being more than giving us everything else. So on one hand, in one hand you have everything. And in the other hand, you have Jesus. And what this verse is saying is greater. Greater, more valuable, more weighty. This is the harder thing for God to do. Which means this, this verse is really just another way of saying and applying Philippians 3. One, one of my favorite passages that has shaped my life. Paul in Philippians 3, he says, I have counted all things, everything over in this hand, as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul says, do the comparison, do the math. All things, he says, and just knowing Jesus, 
says, this is loss, this is rubbish, this is trash compared to the surpassing worth. And so here in verse 32, he says, God, if God did this spectacularly hard thing of giving what is most precious to him, of parting with what is most valuable, of paying the highest cost, then of course he's going to give us everything else. And so, so think of this. Gather all of the gold in the world together. And it is dust and ashes compared to the spectacular worth of Jesus. Every dollar in every bank account is as nothing compared to the value, the inestimable value of the person of Jesus. Take in this hand every relationship, every loved one, every person who is precious to you and, and is in fact truly precious and yet their value pales in comparison to Jesus who is infinitely worthy, infinitely valuable, infinitely precious because of who he is. This is, Jesus says this uh, in a hard way in, in one of the Gospels. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, which is a, which is a hard way of saying, I am worth more than they are. Which is a pretty audacious thing to say. That's a pretty scandalous thing to say unless it's true. Right? Unless it's true. I'm not in a position to say that I am more valuable than you. You should treat me as such. Uh, because I'm not. However, I am in a position to say, guys, do the math. $50,000 is more than 50 cents. And Jesus is in a position to say, Jesus is the only one with grounds to say, I am more valuable than that, than them, than you. Which again, if it's not true, that, that's megalomania. That's crazy. And Jesus is arrogant. But if it is true, if it is true, if the one who made all things and sustains all things, if Jesus is in fact the second person of the Trinity, God the Son from eternity to eternity, and if he is the one who owns all things, made all things, if he is infinitely valuable, worthy of worship and praise, then for him to say, I'm more valuable, is not arrogance or megalomania, it is in fact love. It is in fact love because he is saying, come to me and know me. I am worth everything in your life to know. I am the treasure that to be found. I am the, surpass the surpassing worth of knowing me is worth everything in your life. And this is also the foundation of this argument that diffuses worry that builds thankfulness, 
that he is more valuable, more precious than gold. And everything else is as nothing compared to him. So can I ask you, do you know him? Do you know him like that? Paul says, I count all things as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you know him? Have you put your trust in this Savior to say, Jesus, I want you to be more than just a, a get out of hell free card. Jesus is more than fire insurance. Jesus is the one we were made to know. He is the one who satisfies our souls. To say, Jesus, I want to know you like that. And, and, and listen, that's, that's a lifetime pursuit. That's a, a, a 10,000 years from now, we will have only scratched the surface. And so if you, if you have put your faith in Jesus and you're like, I, I struggle to know him like that, that's okay. That's, a, that's okay. It's a process. It's a process to turn our eyes away from the 50 cents that we're so enamored with and put our trust in the $50,000. That's, you know, that's the symptom of our warped sinful hearts that this is, ooh, this is shiny. I want this. But oh, to know Jesus as infinitely valuable. Oh, that's my prayer for you and for me. And this will, I tell you, this will diffuse worry. This will be a foundation of thankfulness. If this verse, <clears throat> saying God did not spare his own son, if we can even just start to feel the weight of that. That he did not spare his own son, but the infinitely worthy, infinitely valuable Son of God went to the cross for us and gave his life for us and emptied himself for us. Oh, the spectacular generosity of God. That's the second thing. We see the spectacular worth of Jesus and the spectacular generosity of God to give us his only son. He did not spare his only son. That God looked at you, as I said before, he looked at you in love. And that love, let's make sure we, we, we get this, we get the, the love of God right here. Because a, a lot of times we can sort of approach love as love is something that points at me and makes me feel special. Love, I feel loved when everyone pumps me up. And it's like, oh, you're so wonderful and special. The love of God is not that he looked at you in your sin and saw underneath that mess, oh, this is something so valuable, so special, I just got to have this in my family and I'll even give my son for this. It's not that. The love of God did not consider 
how to say this the right way, the love of God in calculating the value did not say, oh, salvation here for the price of my son, that's a pretty good deal, I'll do that. That's not how the love of God works. The love of God saw us in our mess and in our failure and determined to give what is infinitely valuable for us despite us. The love of God does not originate in us and our value. It originates in the extravagant heart of God who was willing to spend more than we're worth in order to rescue us. And so let's get our eyes off of ourselves and away with the thought that I must be so special and valuable for Jesus to die for me. You are special. You are valuable. You are, as Jesus said, more valuable than many birds and flowers. You are precious and beloved in his sight infinitely more precious and beloved in his sight is his son. And so as we see God the Father sending his son for us, do not see in that the spectacular worth of me. See in it the spectacular generosity of God. Sending his son to the cross to stand in the place of ruined sinners, to reclaim us for his own so that we might spend all eternity marveling at his generosity and knowing the one that we were made to know. Oh, the spectacular generosity of God. And you know, this is, that generosity is what we celebrate in, in communion. We're, we're, doing, we're doing communion today, and I, I don't have the elements with me because I want to join with you guys live when, we're, when we do this, um, but there were, there are communion elements back at, the, at, at, the, at the, the doors when you walked in. If you missed that, go, go grab one, um, because th this is what communion is about. We're, we're going to do communion kind of right, right now, we're right, right here in the middle of the sermon, because this that celebration with a little tiny wafer of stale bread <laughs> and a little tiny thimble full of warm grape juice <laughs> is a reminder, is a little picture pointing us to the spectacular generosity of God. That Jesus, though he is worthy of praise and worship, though, though all of heaven shouts his praise, yet he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and his body was broken for us. Nails pierced his hand, spear pierced his side, and he offered up his life and his very self in our place for our sin. And so we take that bread 
and we remember his body broken for us and the, and the thimble full of juice as a little picture that his blood was shed on the night that he, on the night before the cross and he, he took that cup and he said, this, this is the new covenant in my blood, the new relationship between God and people in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And what, what we've celebrated, what, we, what we've sung about that, that for Jesus, the cup was not removed, that he drank the cup of wrath so that he could put into our hands the cup of mercy, the cup of forgiveness, the cup of new life bought at such an infinitely high price. Oh, the extravagant, spectacular generosity of God. So let's, let's now, even as, as we linger on this, take, take that bread and let's, let's together, let's eat that bread. And together, let's take this cup and drink. And remember, oh God, the price that you have paid for us. So let's eat, let's drink. And as we finish here, let's have the, have the worship team come up, come up on stage because we're not done yet. The spectacular generosity of God in giving what is most precious to him is the foundation in this argument for that we can trust him for everything else and be thankful for everything else. If he, who, if he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, of course, how would he not also, along with that infinitely precious gift, graciously give us, Paul says, all things? What does that mean? What does, what does, when he says that, of course, God's going to graciously give us all things, what does that mean? It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you can say, Lord, I name and claim my Lamborghini <laughs> and to go outside and there it is parked for you. Here's, here's what it means. When it says that God, of course, will graciously give us everything else along with Jesus. It means, one, it means that now he gives us everything we need. Two, in the end, he gives us everything. Now he gives us everything we need. He gives us Romans 8.28 of all things working together for my good. He gives us everything building that chain, linking me, drawing me all the way to glory. Everything that I need for life and for godliness. He provides my daily bread he provides breath for my lungs. He provides mercy that is new every morning. He gives me what I need. And so often he gives me so much more, right? <laughs> he, he's, not, he's not a stingy God carefully measuring out provision. He is generous. And look at our lives. Of course, he, he is generous, but it means that now we can know, we can trust. He will give us everything we need. But in the end, when that 
justification gives way to glorification, in the end, he gives us everything. You may remember from 1 Corinthians 3, way back in our 1 Corinthians study, Paul says, says, believer, everything is yours. Everything, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours and you are Christ's. In the end, he gives us everything. And as Jesus, in the, in the end, we're, we're going to see this when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, when we come back to that after, after Christmas, and we see that Jesus, by virtue of his death and resurrection, has reclaimed the entire cosmos, that he is going to reign until everything opposed to him is rendered obsolete and is destroyed and ruined and swept off the table. He's going to make everything new. He's going to sit down on the throne and invite us to sit down on the throne with him. And all things are yours. And so in the end, we, maybe you, you do get the Lamborghini, sure. Not now, probably. But in the end, everything is yours. And everything between now and then is a down payment on that future inheritance. It, it's, it's my inheritance getting paid out early, supplying everything, everything that I need now. And so he does graciously give us all things, everything we need and one day everything. And again, we can know this when we look at the cross. When our circumstances don't line up, when it feels like he is withholding from us, when it feels like things are against us, when it feels like, like things are not working for me, we can look at the cross and know that we have much to be thankful for. We have much to be thankful for, church. God is good. God is generous and he is kind regardless of our circumstances and in our circumstances and most of all in his son so church family let's stand let's stand and let's let's declare our thankfulness let's declare our confidence in this great god as we as we sing this song god god you are you are so good God, God is so good. And so, Lord, we declare this, that you are so good. You are so generous. You are a good father, a generous king, and a kind savior. And we know this, Lord, because you have not withheld your son from us. And along with him, Lord, we can have confidence that you're going to give us the 50 cents. You're going to give us everything else we need. So, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to place, to place that irrational worry in your hands. Lord, build in us, grow in us thankfulness for all of the little 50 cent blessings and most of all for the infinite price and value and surpassing worth of your son. Help us to see and help us to worship. And now, Lord, as we sing, receive that worship and our thankfulness that you are so richly due. Pray in Jesus' name.